Hello, and welcome to episode 146 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Imam Talib Sharif, president of the nation's mosque, Masjid Muhammad, former chief master sergeant in the United States Air Force, a national representative for Muslim America Veterans Association, and the president of the Interfaith Conference. Uh, Imam Sharif, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, John. Thank you for asking. I really appreciate it. Excellent. The first thing I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, we've done a, we've done a lot of things and uh, we, we, we have done a lot of things. And mm-hmm. Right now, the biggest area is interfaith right now. Interfaith? Uh, yeah. Really, we've been working interfaith since the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first Muslim organizations, probably the first Muslim organization in America mm-hmm. to embrace interfaith. Uh, relations. Uh, in fact, I think this is the oldest uh, relations. Uh, society, the world, one of the struggles is to unite it, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, we find that most people in the world uh, do share faith, they're not. Mm-hmm. And that's always a good place uh, to start. So why is it important to have interfaith dialogue? How does that fit into your identity as Muslim and as to the mission of the Mus- uh, Masjid Muhammad Mosque? Well, it's important, again, because, first of all, most of the people share faith. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about faith, you're really talking about the spirit, you know, mm-hmm. the unseen. We're both invisible mm-hmm. and we're visible. Mm-hmm. But the most important part of any human being, mm-hmm. whether they claim a faith or not, is the invisible. You know, So we have to, faith, faith speaks to that, addresses that. Uh, when you here. mention indivisible, you're mm-hmm. referencing God? Uh, without represent invisible, yes, God is invisible. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, a, he's the invisible being. We can't see him with our physical eye. Uh-huh. And so indivisible is also a reference. No, in, invisible. 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 Okay. Invisible. Okay. So, um, so human beings are invisible, mm-hmm. and they're visible. Oh. So, so that's what I'm saying. How are human beings invisible? Well, the real you, I can't see. I can't see your thoughts. You can share them with me huh. through, through the visible. You're speaking. It's, it's your indivisible. That's speaking, but it has to have the visible to be able to give the expression of what you want to share. If you didn't, if you didn't have the invisible, mm-hmm. you couldn't even be sitting with me right now because the visible would fall. This is how. This is why it's so important for faith communities to come together because the majority of them believe in investing in the invisible. Mm-hmm. You know, because that's 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 the whole. That's the true life. That's the the soul of the human being. If you don't have that, you don't really exist. You know, so the so so what's the relationship between the invisible in the human uh, being and and Islam? How does Islam relate? What is the nature of the relationship between your faith yes. and your so, invisible soul? Yeah, our faith tells us that everybody is created from one single soul. Hmm. So it tells us really that we're all connected. You have many souls, but we come from one soul. Even non-Muslims. Even non-Muslims. This is, this is the thing. Life is connected. Mm-hmm. We're really all a part of each other. You see, things, re- uh, things register on the soul. When 9-11 hit, for instance, in America, mm-hmm. no matter what your religion was, no matter what your nationality was, mm-hmm. no matter what your race was, no matter what your ethnicity was, mm-hmm. what you felt, mm-hmm. what your soul felt, yeah. it was the same. I've, I've heard the comments. We felt the same thing. We're not talking about physically. We're talking about spiritually. See what our soul felt. Our cry, it was it responded the same way. So, do you see yourself so, as a spiritual leader, as since you are an imam? 
Yes, yeah, so email. He's that's one of the things that he does. What else? So, so to, how are you? How do you fulfill your responsibilities to lead the soul, be a spiritual leader for your congregation? Well, one of the things I have to do, it's mandatory for me to do, mm-hmm. is is be a proponent of, and and give them God's guidance from the Holy Quran. Mm-hmm. You see, and that's the guidance that's speaking really to the soul. And uh, I, I, it's important that we speak to the soul of the individual, because when we speak to just a label, mm-hmm. that's not going to be strong enough. You see, if, if a I, label. When I say label, mm-hmm. what I mean, if I speak to just you, because you say you're a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I speak to somebody and I say I'm Muslim and you're a Christian, then mm-hmm. labels get in the way. Mm-hmm. Walls might go up. Versus I'm a man and you're a man. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You see, we really we're one. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, we just the labels come later. Mm-hmm. Our first life is connected. Mm-hmm. You see, I might not be connected by labels, but our life, our common, our original identity, is connected. You know. So our, how our, is it that we came? If we all came from the same soul, mm-hmm. how is it that we manifest in so many different ways and have so many different uh, we subscribe to so many different belief systems. Yes, that's because because the one that gave us our soul mm-hmm. and that gave us our identities also gave us distinctions. Hmm. And the distinctions are meant for us not to despise each other or to look down on each other, mm-hmm. but for us to really to get to know each other and explore each other, you see, mm-hmm. and be able to maximize life by sharing the differences and the distinctions that we have. Look, most of the faiths go back to Adam. All right, Adam, he's the first. Now, some faith don't use the name Adam. Mm-hmm. They may use something else. But it had to be a first in order for there to be a second and third, et cetera. And, and I want to say this. When I say Adam, mm-hmm. I'm also saying Adam in the plural, mm-hmm. so the mate mm-hmm. and others. When Adam was created, mm-hmm. he did not have a national identity. Mm-hmm. He did not have an ethnic identity. He did not have a racial identity. But what was his identity? What was the first identity? If we say he's the first, mm-hmm. and, most, and, the, and the majority of faith, the major faith group, I say, they see him as the first. What was his identity? And where did it come from? Well, the one that created him gave him the first identity, which was human. Mm-hmm. And if that's the first identity, that must be the most important identity. So everything else has to come after that. If, if it didn't exist at that time, it didn't come before it. It came after it. So we, if we focus on the most important identity, that identity will be strong enough mm-hmm. to hold up the other identities that came later. Would you mind sharing with the listening audience how you became aware of the most important identity yes, for I, you? Yes, I'd, I'd be glad to share that. For me, uh, I'm going to give some personal stuff if I, if I, if I would. Please. My father uh, was killed in New York. The person I knew was my father. Mm-hmm. I was young because I wasn't old enough to even to comprehend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this information came to me later. Uh, my, I may have been four, four years old maybe, in New York City. So my mother uh, relocated to North Carolina, where the majority of her family was, and where her mother was, and also her brothers, et cetera, and sisters, where in Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. She, she, she remarried. And uh, it was, I guess it had to have been a quick marriage. She probably really didn't know this person, but this person uh, was a violent person. Hmm. So as a young person, I experienced domestic violence and seeing my mother uh, being hurt and of course when you're young like that it's not much you can do but you know our nature as human beings we don't like violence and we see kids when they see things they start screaming they start crying because our nature really doesn't want violence mm-hmm. and uh, I, and you do what little children do I, I jumped on the back and because he pushed me down I tried to grab a leg and kick me off and I'm just crying but anyway he was getting ready to hurt my mother real bad one day she was able to get, get away 
and grabbed me and, my, and, and a sister at the time, and we got to her mother's home. Mm -hmm. Now, while at her mother's home, I guess he, he wanted to kill her. So I can recall, as clear as day, being at her mother's home, and all of a sudden, there's a big crash through the living room window. And he, it is him. He comes crashing through the living room window, and he has a rifle. I guess he saw her come past where he wanted to make sure he was up close because he wanted her to see. He could have shot her from outside, but I guess he wanted, you know, this is the type of person he was. He wanted to get up close to her and let her see right before he killed her. And so he came to the window, and I was in the back room, and of course the noise got everybody's attention, and all of a sudden, you know, he's a young kid. I run up, and I'm in the hallway, and I see this stuff unfolding. He's getting ready to shoot my mother in the heart. My uncle, who was a teenager at the time, goes towards him with no hesitation, no reservation, and at the right time, he is able to grab the gun and push it down to where my mother doesn't get shot anywhere in her chest in the vital organs, but she does get shot in the leg. And then my uncle, after pushing it down, the gun goes off, my uncle, it was a chair, he grabbed the chair, this is like an instinctive, and he hit, hit it, mm -hmm. and so he, he fled. And obviously later, police come, and they end up getting these in jail. But here I am, a young person. All young life, it looks for mentors. That's the nature of life. You see it in animals, right? The, the older ones have to show them how to hunt, how to do things. Mm -hmm. They mentor them. Mm -hmm. You know, this man, you can imagine how I felt as a young person. With, here he is, my uncle. He was much older than me. He was a teenager. I was just young. Maybe been, at that time, maybe five or six, maybe. And uh, so I was, I just loved him. He saved my mother's life. They just tell him to stay close to me. Mm -hmm. So he was the one that really my spiritual awakening was is connected with him. And, and uh, so following him, seeing him, he ended up going into Vietnam as we as time goes by. Were you Muslim at this time? We were not Muslim at the time. The family, the family uh, was Christian at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were going to church. Okay, and I didn't I didn't get the sense of what I had sense after what I'm getting ready to tell you where the, what I call the awakening for me mm -hmm. began, began to come in. That led me to the path where I'm a Muslim today. And it, and it has everything to do with this uncle. And this uncle, uh, he goes to Vietnam. And I miss him. Because mm -hmm. uh, he, he, he helps me. He was involved in, he was in the Y, the YMCA. Mm -hmm. I would go and he was in martial arts. He would teach me. Uh, and I'm a martial artist. And I like fitness because of that, and I've been doing it for a long time because of him. Uh, but he goes to Vietnam, and a lot of people in the neighborhood that were, that were his friends, they went to Vietnam with him, and he lost a lot of them. They, were, they, they, they lost their life. And, and he saw them lose their life, and it was horrific. I mean, you just, you maybe see scenes in a movie, maybe, if you haven't done combat, to see how people can be torn apart right in front of your face. And, and obviously he was a young person and having to deal with that. And then because the Vietnam is the war now that America says never again because when they came home, they didn't get a good welcome. Mm -hmm. And we know a lot of people protested that war. It wasn't very popular, uh, you know? And uh, so particularly as an African-American and from the South, North Carolina being in the South, uh, we did experience some prejudice there. Uh, that's, a, that's a story too that has a lot to do with with, with uh, me coming to my conclusion because of some of the racist things uh, that were taking place uh, in, in the city. Um, so he was upset. And of course, one of the reasons he was upset is because really this trauma 
that he never was treated for. That was happening in that, in that mission that he wasn't received well, coming back, wasn't getting the help he needed. So he began to join movements that were trying to make do things positive to help people. And uh, so he joined a group uh, similar to Black Panthers. It wasn't the Black Panthers, but it was close to the Black Panthers. And this was upon his return this from Vietnam. This was upon his return. So again, I'm, now I'm, I'm, he has maybe PTSD. He does. It's not called that then. Obviously, it's not called that. Yeah. Okay, now, it doesn't, we don't even see it. But again, I'm just trying to say things come out different ways. Mm-hmm. And it was really discovered later, very much later, really recent in recent times right here. Um, so he gets involved in these movements, but they're not strong enough to hold him. So he joins uh, what was called the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. And I want to make it very clear, when I say Nation of Islam, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the current day Nation of Islam. I'm talking about the original nation of Islam. And what was what's the difference? The difference now is that the nation of Islam I'm talking about is the one that was 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 started uh, by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Okay, and transitioned from him to his son. That's the one. That's the one I'm talking about. So, but there was uh, a movement to reinstate that uh, by the current leader. Mm-hmm. So I just want to make a distinction. I'm not saying anything negative about it. I just want to make a distinction right now. So I don't want the listeners mind because some people don't know about the original, which was meant to become universal mm-hmm. from the very beginning. It was it was started off national, but meant to become universal, which is that's where I am now. I'm upon that upon that life. So anyway, he, he got involved and then he took me. And I began to hear things as a young person. I was just a teenager myself now. And uh, it made sense about religious teachings. And I'm young, and there were things happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll give you an experience of some of the racial things that were happening in the city, just to give you a note. This is a part of what shaped me. And for our listeners who cannot see you, uh, what is your demographic profile? Yeah, I will be classified as an African-American. Okay. And uh, in 1969, mm-hmm. the city of Wilmington, uh, I don't know if it was for the, the state or just the city, uh, but the law came down to integrate the schools. So we're talking about the, the mid-1950s? I'm saying 1969. It all came down for, for us, for that city now. Although we know we, know we had the, the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. In the 50s. Thing, in the 50s. But again, this thing still, the decision was made, but everything hadn't taken place yet. Right. Implemented across the nation. Okay. Okay, separate, but even all this kind of thing. Uh, so, but for, for, for that city, it, it came down for 69 that, you know, not be separate anymore, but to begin to integrate. And so the city was slow to, to implement that. And so disturbances started breaking out. Racial tensions started breaking out. Now, I'm, I'm just a teenager now. I'm not even, you know, but I'm just saying this is a part of what things that I've experienced. And uh, so it got to the point where in 1972, a lot of riots broke out. Huh. And uh, they brought in an individual uh, named, at that time, an activist named was Ben Chavis. Many know him today. He was in what was he was in the city of Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh-huh. They brought him in. Angela Davis came in during that time. People know of her name too, also being also an activist. And they had what, what what came out of that was called what was called the Wilmington Ten. They were accused of doing something that they didn't do in terms of blowing up uh, churches and some other things. These were African Americans, African Americans who were referred to as the Wilmington Ten. And this who, the, city, the city was called Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina. And yeah, they were called the Wilmington Ten. That and ended up being they were, and these ten were accused by the criminal justice system of yes. being domestic terrorists. And yes, all yes, yes. Okay. And they just they were just exonerated uh, in, the, in the past year. They were exonerated. Yes, yes. And uh, but anyway, I'm here. The, the main street into Wilmington was called Dawson Street, mm-hmm. and we lived on that street. 
And so they, the city, again, I guess the tanks were coming down. <laughs> and I'm young now, you gotta understand that, but I, 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 I'm not unmindful of that this is a racial thing, you know, mm -hmm. this as a young person. Uh, shooting is happening, you know. Whites are shooting blacks or blacks are both. shooting both? They're both, I mean, because you got National Guard in now, you know, trying to calm things down. And uh, I remember my mother screaming at me, telling me to get down, because I was you know, I had to this, you know, this teenage, you know, curious too, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I listened to her at the very right moment because I got down, and then this big old tank of tear gas came through the window, which would have tucked my head off uh, if I didn't, uh, you know. And uh, so these are the kind of things that were happening. I'll, eventually, it calmed down. And uh, so then they're teaching about the injustice in the society. And again, I'm a young person, just like the young people today. They, when you see injustice, it bothers you. It disturbs you. It's a disturbance. They don't sit right, you know. Uh, and it's not physical. It's, it's internal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was one of those. So the things they were saying about freedom, justice, and equality uh, begin to make sense to me in terms of religious teachings. Right. Uh, so I began, I began to embrace that. I didn't, I didn't see it as strong in the faith that I was in at that time, which was I, I was a Christian. And, uh, but with the teachings that I was hearing as a young man going with my uncle mm -hmm. uh, began to affect me so and, uh, to the point where I began to embrace, embrace that. So it almost sounds like your, your Muslim identity was born of the American Civil Rights Movement. You could say that. I, I, I came through the same track as Muhammad Ali, mm -hmm. the same thing that shaped him to go from where he was to become a universal. Malcolm X, in fact, Malcolm X used to be the leader at this very place that we are right now. Uh, same track, he, he changed to become universal, you know, but it was, a, it was upon uh, social justice and those kind of things that affected, affected uh, those individuals. And again, me as a young person, the same kind of things affected me. I didn't have the status that they had, obviously, uh, but, but them and many others, we were part of that same movement that affected us uh, to make decisions uh, to enhance our life. You mentioned that the, that your uncle was attracted to various social movements, including something similar to the Black Panther movement. Yeah, he actually ended up being the leader, actually. And was, you know, very, very uh, popular in the, in the city of Wilmington. I have an article with him on the page with the, with the group, and they had their dashikis on. And, and this was back there in the 70s. I still have it, mm -hmm. that the newspaper did it. But they were doing some good work. So yeah. there was a, clearly a desire among your, your uncle and, and his peers and your peers to be part of something larger than yourselves. Yes. And it seems as though you were attracted to Islam because of Islam's teachings about freedom and justice and equality. Now, of course, many Christian individuals or, or clergy might say that Christianity also um, supports those three ideas. And in fact, earlier today, you said that we all come from the same flame, yeah, regardless I, of. So faith. I would agree. I would, I would agree. So, yeah. was it that the many individuals uh, of your of your of your time and place and location and, and, and place in society sought to distance themselves from a religion that was affiliated with those individuals who were oppressing you and who were committing acts of violence against? Uh, individuals like you who were yes, Christian? Yes. Was so, that so, a so you got you to look at, now this is uh, obviously my story, and you're right, there are some, but, but obviously the church that I was going to, they weren't, they weren't active. Uh, and again, they were affiliated with those who carried the same label that they shared at that particular time. Right, so a white and, supremacist. Uh, white supremacist. KKK and, uh, and could I, be I, Christian. I, obviously, uh, they had an image of God as white. Right. These kind of things. That affected my mind as a young person, too. All those things affected, affected me, but when again, when again, the Islam 
I didn't have that picture. I saw is him. Allah white? No, Allah is not white. See, I mentioned he's invisible. He, he's not, he's not he has invisible. no skin color. He has no skin color. He's and not can you depict him with pictures? You, see, you cannot depict him with pictures. And of course, the scripture says that too, and that's something I conflicted with because I was read in the Bible that God said make no images of him. The Christian scripture. The Christian scripture. And yet would, they would still make images. And they would still. So that's something in the opposite. I would hear things like that in Islam mm -hmm. that would also complement because the Bible is also part of the Quran. Yeah, you've seen it, the Torah as well, mm -hmm. and uh, so those things are, are there. So that those that helped me for me in terms of social justice and, and really being able to open up the way for people in the struggle for to see humanity free as a people in America, mm -hmm. freedom, justice, equality. That interest in the movement was stronger for my soul, and it seemed to, as a young person, in my circumstances, be something that pulled me uh, towards it at that time. And yet, despite all of those atrocities that were relayed to you about what your uncle witnessed in Vietnam. I want to talk about that in a minute. And yeah. despite all of the uh, appeal of Islam um, and, and, and the appeal to move away from violence and all of the detrimental uh, detrius that violence left in your childhood, you still went and joined the United States Air Force and made a career of it. Yeah, now let me say this. The Nation of Islam was a nonviolent movement. Hmm. They didn't carry weapons. They were they were strictly forbidding to carry weapons. They were strictly forbidding mm -hmm. to to be disrespectful to law enforcement. Hmm. You know, in fact, if they if they done anything to break the law, they had to be law abiding. I put it this way: had to be law abiding citizens. This was a part of the teachings. It was very strong teachings. Similar to what Martin Luther King was teaching. Very similar, very similar. But it was it had more because they actually had cars that they had to carry in their wallet. Mm -hmm. That if they were caught doing anything wrong, they were supposed to give that car to the law enforcement officer that told them that if they'd done anything wrong to disobey the law, to take them, lock them up, prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. Mm -hmm. This is something that all the Muslims had to carry because this was the kind of kind of movement that it was. Mm -hmm. So that so that has a relationship. But let me say this piece. That movement was against violence, and of course Muhammad Ali, his story we know. He had to go to the Supreme Court because he didn't want to go to the military to kill anybody mm -hmm. because the religion was against that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so I want to say this piece. My uncle, having joined that movement that said we shouldn't fight, we shouldn't kill, mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't encouraged to go into the military. Mm -hmm. In fact, to some degree, the language was even stronger. It was forbidden as part of the movement to, to join the military. Mm -hmm. But he had already joined. But So his, his sacrifice... Mm -hmm. To the country, and I, I, I mentioned briefly about his sacrifice. What he sacrificed, you know, he he he, he, he was hit. He was hit himself. He had to have stuff removed from his body, you know. Uh, he lost his friends. Some of them didn't survive it. He survived. So it was a great sacrifice he made. So that sacrifice was, in the in some respect, discredited. Now let me let me let me just fast forward. And I'm gonna bring it to the Air Force piece. The movement was always meant to go universal. The son, in the, the mid-70s, became the leader after the father passed. Mm -hmm. And the father made it very clear before his passing that his son would succeed him. And the son, his job was to do what he was always doing, was teaching pure Quran. Mm -hmm. His father didn't know the Quran. He couldn't really teach the pure Quran. He, he gave pieces of it. He put literal things of the Quran in his writings, verbatim mm -hmm. stuff that Muslims to keep, to show that this is where he wanted us to go. Mm -hmm. And the son, his job was to implement it. The, the father's job, he said his job was to clean people up, to clean us up, bring us together. Clean us up meaning this. Take us off of drugs. Take us off of alcohol. Uh, prostitution. Pimps. Uh, he was incarcerated. Help you come out and be a, be, a, be, a, be a healthy citizen. 
these kind of things. He's actually credited with cleaning up more people in America than any other movement in the history of America huh. in terms of social. Women, the respect for women. He made sure men respect women. The adultery, all the kind of things strictly were forbidden and, uh, and stuff like that. So he, he said, my job was to clean you up. My son's job is to teach you the religion. And that's so the son began to teach the religion. But what, what the son did was this. He did something contrary to what the movement uh, was a opponent of. His son picked up the flag. Picked up the American flag. Here's the mid-70s. Uh -huh. Coming out of Vietnam when the flag was disrespected by even white Americans. Uh -huh. And he was also himself in prison because his father told him not to claim the conscious objective and he'd go to prison like the rest of us went to prison. Uh -huh. And so he, but still, he picked the flag up. And he said, if you all won't pick it up, these, I'm quoting him, if you all won't pick it up, I will. He was talking to his father's movement, which was tens of hundreds of thousands at that time. And uh, he picked it up on a pole, and he walked with it and waved it. Uh -huh. Now, I wasn't there. Now, this is the mid-70s. Now, what I want to say with this piece here, my uncle brought that back to me. And he, was, he brought it back to me with an excitement. Uh -huh. And, and uh, Imam also said, and I'm talking about Imam Wallace Muhammad now, the son. He said, we have an obligation to support, defend, and protect our society. So in a sense where the father had pulled us out to clean us up, to give us a sense of self-dignity and in our, in our interest in our struggle to see our humanity free and have freedom, justice, and equality, uh -huh. the son began to put us back in and have us claim our share of America and, and, and our identity as Muslim Americans. He began that. So, so when, the, when, the, when the uncle brought that back to me, he didn't necessarily tell me to go into the military. His, as a mentor, his expression and excitement, because what I come to find out was the credit was restored to the sacrifice that he had made for this nation. So that was part of his excitement. But that told me, you know, obviously as teenagers, we're always thinking about what we're gonna do. And I actually had some other plans. But after, after experiencing him, uh -huh. and I wasn't old enough to join the military at that time, uh -huh. I then, uh, two years later, which was 1979, I joined the United States Air Force on the strength of an, of an imam picking up the flag and making the statements that he said, and then you know, Mark was sharing that with me. He was the first imam in America to pick up the flag, and that's what led me to the Air Force. Well, I very much appreciate you sharing your personal story with me and our listeners today. Uh, an incredible tale that ties in uh, a story affecting millions of African-Americans, uh, billions of Muslims, and uh, hundreds of millions of Americans. Uh, as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you a final question, uh, which is to suppose you were speaking to your congregation here at Masjid Muhammad, and I'd like you to speak to them for a moment about why, uh, why it's so important to do public service, why Islam is a means of serving our fellow man, and what, at the end of the day, you hope to accomplish, and you hope that they might accomplish throughout their life for the betterment of everyone. Yeah, it's, it's very important to do public service. First of all, service period is really your nature, mm -hmm. you know. God, God says it's your nature, and we look at children. If you want to know what our nature is, we start looking at children to see what they're doing. They want to be helpful. Mm 
Mm-hmm. They want to serve. They see Mother Bacon, if he's a girl or something, even, even guys sometimes, they want to help. They want to mm-hmm. be helpful. Mm-hmm. See the father working on the car. They want to help him, get him with a tool. They want to do something. That's just our nature to be of service. And, of course, we get older. See, this is where, this is where the real peace comes in. Mm-hmm. Real peace and satisfaction is not from creature comforts. You know, not from being able to have a house, a car, or some food. Those are just creature comforts. The real satisfaction comes when you see that you're serving. We were all, God said, in, in the Holy Scriptures, in the Quran, that we were created to serve him. But it also tells us that God doesn't need anything. So how do we serve God? <laughs> so God tells us we serve him by serving others. This is how we serve God. We give our, we, we give our service to him by serving the society and service others. You know, in the military, what they call it, they call it service. Are you going into service? Have you been in the service? Mm-hmm. Because, see, that service, service is connected to really, it's all, when you give your time, your mind, your wealth, your money, it's a sacrifice. But the greatest service you can give is that your service, the more people it affects, the greater the service. So when you're in the military, it's not like a doctor who just maybe saved a life or lives of certain people, not like a fireman who just served lives in the city, or police officer. When, you, mm-hmm. when you're in the service, you really serve the majority of those in a whole nation, and your life is partial to give it for the, on behalf of the whole. That's why it's a, it's a greater, it's called a, a charity too, your service. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. That's your gift that you give, if you have to give it. I, I had my posture to give it for 30 years, but, it, but, it, but I didn't have to. It wasn't God's will that I give it, but I'm still postured. I'm out of service, but I'm not served out because we have an obligation to serve. And this is where true satisfaction comes in, when you're serving your fellow man. We come here, someone serves us, we can't do for ourselves. We have to find others in society who have needs that can't do for themselves, and we serve we have to serve them if we have the ability to do so. And that has been Imam Talib Sharif, president of the nation's mosque, Masjid Muhammad, former chief master sergeant in the United States Air Force, the national representative of the Muslim America Veterans Association, and the president of the Interfaith Conference, who speaks about his spiritual awakening within the context of the civil rights movement. He speaks about being greatly influenced and drawn to Islam uh, by through his mentor, his, his uncle, became his mentor um, through a profound act of, of compassion. Uh, and that has led in, in turn to, to a sense, a broader sense of social compassion for the imam. The compassion that saved the woman's life is now something that directs the imam's life. He was born in a world of injustice and has sought freedom, justice, and equality. He sought to have sacrifices that were made to be uh, recognized as such. And through Islam, he finds great fulfillment through service, and he finds that you're able to serve God by serving others. Talib speaks about service as a means of serving others, that serving God, being part of something larger than yourself, is ultimately the best way to lead a fulfilling life for him and those who subscribe to his teachings. Talib is uh, very much dedicated to, uh, to advancing the public interest through Islam as one of what he recognizes as many possible means to improve the condition of the human race, of which we are all a part. So, Talib, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome, John. Greatly appreciate the invitation.
and this has been episode 146 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'd like to remind you to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com, listen on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And should you wish to leave a message for Talib, please call 240-630-0380, and that voicemail will be emailed to him. Thank you so much for joining. We'll talk to you next time.